Hey everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor, I'm here with Mark. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like I didn't finish my book, but that's the new format. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So last uh, last episode, we discussed that we're not finishing books 100% anymore. We're going to try to record more often, which means we want to try to do weekly episodes. Um, so instead of sweating, oh my god, I haven't finished, I haven't finished, we decided that we would be more, possibly even more detail-oriented going into the nooks and crannies of a book instead of trying to talk about the whole thing and try to finish something every week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I so didn't ask you how you're feeling, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling, I didn't prepare anything extra, I'm feeling like I'm going to sip this cup of coffee. Okay. We are currently recording at 7 in the morning. And it's eight in the morning for you, right? Yep. <laughs> All right. Here we are. Yeah, but we uh, we were back to the roots of a Sunday Sunday podcast. Yes, Sunday podcast yeah. where we That's don't Sunday necessarily feeling. have to finish the book, but we'll try our best to mow yeah. down a few <laughs> mow down a few chapters and get you the. Uh, scintillating conversation that you all deserve. Yeah. So Mark said you have an intro. Yeah. Uh, Again, well, like I do with my book reports, I'll start with a question here. Right. Do you know what the word polydactyl means? Mm. Polydactyl. No, but let me let me kind of give a guess. Yeah, break it up. Polydactyl. So it sounds like. Is that when people can write with two hands? Nope. That's what it Amb sounds like to me. Ambidextrous. Like, <laughs> like yeah, ambidextrous, but like poly but, like like more specifically, like I'm polydactyl. I can write with two hands. Yeah. Um multiple uh, yeah, and then, and then like dactyl sounds like, you know, physical ability or something. Yeah, I don't know. What is it? It's pretty close. Uh so it's an anomaly in humans and more often animals that results in extra fingers and or toes. Ooh, okay. It, happen it happens a lot in cats. Right, yes. Many many cats have the extra yep. the extra paw. And uh, you know, I bring this up now because my family's trying to to we're trying to get a cat. Nice. Maybe two cats of oh. a family because my, my daughter's obsessed with them, so we gotta mm -hmm. get her a pet. I have a uh, cat. It's in this room right now. A polydactyl cat? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> take a seat <laughs> so yeah we went to the shelter and uh the one that we liked the most of the, the friendliest one was a polydactyl cat so we've been like looking up like what's up with that or you know the history of that or and mm -hmm. you know um so this one had six toes on the on its front paws but one of the things about doing the podcast is i'm always kind of looking for like a literary literary tie to whatever's going on like mm -hmm. you know so i can use it for one of these intros or just discuss it with you and this one's really fortunate do you know what do you what would you guess is the literary tie for polydactyl cats and it's a pretty big one hmm polydactyl cats i can't think of a specific literary tie other than unless it has to do with murakami and cats in general but then no, I can't really think of anything other than like lots of authors are called polymaths. Like yeah. they know multiple <laughs> they know multiple things. Yeah. Um polydactyl so, cats. Yeah, so so we were trying to we were trying to look up like a name that we could use that relates to six or or you know mm -hmm. something. We're trying to 
figure something out. But we found out that polydactyl cats are sometimes referred to as Hemingway cats. Oh, Hemingways. Yeah, I guess he liked them a lot. Huh. <laughs> so they're either called mitten cats or Hemingway cats. I knew that Hemingway was a cat dude, but I didn't specifically know that he was into extra digits. Yeah, he's a spe- he's specifically into these polydactyl cats. So wow. I'm gonna read this this uh, little snippet I got from the Florida Wild Veterinary Hospital mm-hmm. website. Ernest Hemingway. The best-selling author of The Old Man and the Sea and countless other famous popular classic novels was a passionate cat lover. He was presented with Snow White, a polydactyl cat, as a personal gift by a ship's captain in 1933. (laughs) Snow White went on to produce many litters of polydactyl kittens as the gene passes on. As many as 50 of Snowball or uh, Snow White's ancestors are living the life of luxury today, spoiled and pampered by the staff at the Hemingway Home Museum in Key West, Florida. Sounds smelly. <laughs> no, so if you if you go to the website of the Hemingway Home, mm-hmm. there's some great cat photos on that site because they it's just like part of the exhibit. Interesting. They just hang out by his like typewriters and stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's cool yeah but also honestly probably does smell like a little bit daria and i we once went to one of those cat cafes before we had a cat have you ever heard of a cat cafe yeah yeah so it's like a place where they just serve. where was it because you always hear about them in in japan but it was in london there's one in london yeah and uh it's a it's a wonderful experience and wow there's cats everywhere but yeah it's like you kind of get like punched in the face right when you come in the door <laughs> it smells like cat piss yeah i mean that that's just part of the experience but that's not gonna happen with you guys i mean like one or two cats is like if you ask me i mean honestly maybe we're snobs about it but daria and i like pretty much every day because la is a very everyone has their dog and it's relatively dog friendly here. Like, Oh, like the dog and uh, dogs are shit and people like take them and like ruin everyone's afternoon by being like, our two dogs are at this restaurant and they just yell, like, like bark at each other your entire meal. Like that's like a very common thing. (laughs) So, you know, cats rule dogs rule. Oh, all right. I don't know about that, but, uh, I don't know. I'll have to let's say let's say this LA dog experiences. Let's extend it. Maybe not to the animals themselves, but let's extend it to cat owners, owners, dog owners drool because the dog owners are often (laughs) eccentric with the love of their. Yeah, but who saved who really? (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, yeah, so Hemingway. He had uh he had so many of these cats and he just let them like he let so Key West is obviously like an mm-hmm. it's like an island so they were all just kind of contained on this island <laughs> just like breeding um uh so I got some more info here though Hemingway was proud of his cat collection often saying that he liked nothing better than the feeling of having cats underfoot calling them his purr factories and claiming that one cat just leads to another. (laughs) The author once owned over 50 cats while living at his famous house, the Finca, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, Finca Vija in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Visitors to his home would tell stories of kittens in the beds and and the dinner table swarming with cats. (laughs) 
<laughs> no animal has more liberty than the cat, Hemingway wrote observantly and for whom the bell tolls. And the author certainly put this into practice as his many cats evidently enjoyed free reign over every room of the house. How do you think that smelled? No good. <laughs> Initially keeping a spare bedroom as specifically designated cat room, eventually Hemingway had to cede his entire house over to his freely roaming feline companions as their population grew, feeding them generously from cases of salmon and drinking with them in the evenings, offering them a mixture of whiskey and milk. <laughs> it was in Cuba that he began to collect polydactyl multi-toed cats along with the local sailors. He considered them to be good luck. Mm -hmm. uh, once, once when living in a grotto in Paris as a young man, Hemingway decried that he was too poor to even own a cat. With his low voice and gentle manners, Hemingway had a way with animals in general, often seeking help for strays and injured animals. His favorite cat, a black and white tom called Boise, was immortalized as a character in Hemingway's novel Islands in the Stream. And he's got some other names here. Of uh, he he apparently used to name his cats after like other famous people of the mm -hmm. era. Uh, but he's got he said name names like Princess Six Toes, Featherpuss, Zane Gray, another Ooh. author, Clark Gable, Uncle <laughs> Wolfer. Furhouse, Cristobal, and Goodwill. Furhouse. <laughs> Hemingway believed in the individuality of each of his pets, professing a deep regard for what he called the absolute emotional honesty of cats. Yes. Hemingway, yet another genius on the cat wavelength. So do you so in your opinion, cat owners are more of what introspective or they're more inside? No, no, it has nothing outside to do. people. No, I, I don't want to go like that. Deep. <laughs> it's basically just that in in like city living, which hopefully L.A. can be considered city living, even though it's not as like pop dense as, you know, New York or whatever. Yeah. But within city living, people who have dogs in general, I would say, are less considerate of other people. Hmm. It's basically just like you like the audacity of being like, I'm going to take this thing with me that will disturb other people like, <laughs> hey, there's some good. Well, there's some well-trained dogs. out there. there are well-trained dogs, and I very much appreciate those. But then there's also a lot of not well-trained dogs who will snap at pretty much everything <laughs> above anything above walking calmly they will bark at you you know bark at other dogs <laughs> like like you know there's only one dog i've ever had in my life that i could imagine i could have brought to like a restaurant and all the others would be like a total disaster <laughs> exactly i would have got a lawsuit for some of them and people my jack russell would have been like jumping from table to table <laughs> just like fucking everything well, that's the thing. That's like people honestly do that. Like it's they just tie the dog to the bottom of the table and try to have, you know, bottomless brunch or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's so such a nightmare. And then all you can do is in those situations, you just grow resentment for the dogs and the people because you're just sitting there being like our lovely cat is back at home. Super clean, and, <laughs> super clean and quiet, not fucking up anyone's day. But honestly, this whole cat situation with Hemingway to me sounds like don't meet your heroes. 
like yeah. going into his house and being like, wow, I can't believe I'm meeting Hemingway. And then there's like 50 cats everywhere. You'd be like, this is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I actually went to, to a house once where it was like from I went to an apartment Craigslist listing, like looking for my first apartment in L.A., like going cheap as possible. And it was like a woman who was like the local like, you know, animal shelters don't do enough. So my backyard is fenced in and I have like 60 cats. Oh, my God. And it was terrifying. It was honestly terrifying. There was like yes. diseased cats everywhere. Ugh. That's why uh, Bob Barker stressed to have them spayed or neutered. That's what I was going to say. Hemingway's not watching fucking prices right, apparently. Yeah. I know he just went all out, and I can imagine that, like, like you said, the uh, cases of salmon. He just like <laughs> splurged. Also, it's not the prettiest thing in the cats. world. It's not the prettiest thing in the world when cats start spitting out other cats. So it's like, was his yeah. house just like filled with like you know nativity scenes? What the hell did they? What did they use for cat litter like back in the day? I imagine you just had like a box of sand or something, right? It's not like you they had mass produced like. Mm, I bet you the history. Now. I bet you the history of cat letter is one of those freaky things that goes back way <laughs> farther than you think. Yeah, like I mean, uh, my example know. of that of like things that go way farther back is always like I learned in school that you that ancient Rome had vending machines. <laughs> is that weird? How? How? There were coin operated like like kind of like like devices it's like you put this in and like turn like a thing and and like what you wanted comes out mm. it wasn't like refrigerated coke that that yeah those but were they, the days where you could you could get away with like the coin on a string exactly yeah that's interesting cool. yeah we have to look up the history of kitty litter yes <laughs> Next episode on Shitbook <laughs> Reports, the history of key litter. Dude, there's probably some literary tie. There definitely. I'm probably. telling you, like if you if you look far enough, there's a tie. I mean, this one was really easy. Definitely. It's gonna be something like Shakespeare was sick of having cat shit everywhere. Yeah. So he decided to mulch a tree or something. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, okay, so this week I'm going first, right? Yep. Um, unfortunately, my cat only has the normal number of toes, five toes, but she's around. What's your cat's name? Kisa, which is the Russian word for cat. Okay. Cool. Kisa. Um, okay, so in going with the new format, I actually finished one book and then started another one. I was huh. telling you that I was kind of in between two books at the time. So I will spare a brief few minutes to talk about the very end of la last week's book that I was talking about was um, And Quiet Flows the Dawn by Mikhail Sholohov. And tell me what you remember of that book, if anything. Quiet Goes the Dawn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That was the one, I think it was, you, you mentioned some, uh, like, it, it was a did a good job at not having like a you know russian figures just yeah, in russian the forefront yeah. Pieces, yeah. <laughs> then lennon went to get a cup of coffee 
yeah um, <laughs> no yeah that was yeah it was good in that way but the end of it so it's like this book about the the cossacks and their role in the developing kind of like conflict of world war one with like mm-hmm. you know russia being involved and obviously their their like fate is often tied to russia and kind of these other kind of major government bodies around these the more kind of like neutral i wouldn't say neutral but like the Cossacks are their own thing, but they're not, which is complicated. And um, the end of the book was pretty, pretty interesting. It's like all these different conflicts happen. Um, it's the development of, you know, Tsar Nicholas II and his entire family gets killed. It's the development of like, there's not going to be an empire anymore. There's not going to be a Tsar. There's going to be, you know, a People's Republic, the United, like the Soviet Republic of, you know, we're going to split everything up evenly. Like it's this massive communist ideal that's developing in the country. And the end is like, just totally fucked up. Have you ever heard of a movie called Come and See? Or have you seen it? No. What's that? So Come and See is often referred to as a as a horror movie that's not a horror movie. And what it is, is it's a young it's one young boy's journey throughout World War Two. But like physically in sort of like the battlefield, not like him, like he's not some child soldier or something, but it's like I'm like a kid who is being pushed around by like the Mm -hmm. conflict. And if you ever want to see one of the most fucked up movies you've ever seen, come see, come and see. Not in the sense of like, oh, it's like human centipede. Like, wow, it's so like gross and (laughs) fucked up. But it's like, um, it's very intense, you know, like basically like, you know, bodies piled up, like that kind of thing. Um, You know, just real wartime stuff. And it's also very, it's a beautiful movie. I mean, it's like very artsy and just like some of it is sort of like, um, surreal and impressionistic but other parts of it are shockingly kind of like stark stark reality and stuff so if you know i can't recommend come and see enough it's very good but i would almost say that quiet flows the dawn is kind of like the come and see of books because i was telling you before like he has you you know kind of get globbed on to these interesting characters and then they do really fucked up things like rape people or you know like the one woman like attempts to commit suicide anyway i don't want to go into the full kind of book because i did it last time but i will say that i read the end and the end is very kind of interesting it's like everyone from this conflict these various kind of like proxy wars kind of goes back home the cossacks kind of go back home and then they have this interesting sort of like period where they can kind of like decide which side they're on again. It's like the way it kind of all the cookie crumbles is like you're either a Bolshevik, which is red, or you're mm-hmm. an imperialist, which is white. And there's people that you've been reading throughout the book who it's like, oh, they ended up with the imperialists or oh, they ended up with the Bolsheviks, who who's who and stuff like that. And then they all go home and kind of like you know in that in that sense and in a weird way it was it's interesting to read like a country politically divided because you can totally see this happening it's like i was a bolshevik soldier i believe in the socialist republic but then when you go home your dad is like total you know make america great again or whatever yeah and it's <laughs> like it was this it's the same thing like when they get home it's like no like you have to be an imperialist because like they're winning right now and we don't want to die and like you know all these different like allegiances and then in the end, 
you know, people get jumbled around and switched around, main characters get switched around, and then in the end, there's just, like, this horrifying scene where a bunch of the Imperialists round up a bunch of Bolsheviks and just, like, keep shooting them. Like, they dig, like, a mass grave and just keep shooting them over and over and over and over with all these people in the town watching. And it's sort of, like, I think at the time that it's published, Shokhalov kind of has to be pro-Bolshevik in a way like oh like those are the people who eventually won right quote unquote won and established kind of like the soviet russian government but it's not like some you know mistake that it's the bolsheviks who are getting slaughtered and the and the imperialists are so evil especially at like him like publishing the book like during the soviet union yeah, yeah. I, think if, I think if it was the other way around, like the Bolsheviks are monsters, then it wouldn't have gone as far. Yeah, playing it a little safe uh-huh. for who's winning. But anyway, yeah, it was interesting. Very interesting. Um, but I'll move quickly along. The thing that's funny, and we've talked about this before, about, um, you know, I'll move into my next book report. But the the thing that spurred on that I started reading another book at the same time that I was reading Shokolov is that I'm finishing up and quiet flows the dawn. It was the end of the year last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of close to finishing this book. I was like ready to record with you. Like, you know, whatever happens happens. And then all of a sudden my wife and I both got the opportunity, both of our jobs, like out of the blue, were basically like, we're going to give you off from Christmas to New Year's. No questions asked. Like we didn't, you know, and that was like, wow, like we have this week, what are we going to do? And we decided, you know, to just really quickly book a trip to Hawaii. We were like, we're going to go to Hawaii. We've both never been. We've talked about doing it before. We're in LA. It's like a common thing to go from LA to Hawaii. So we went. And so I'm sitting, I'm facing this, you know, fantastic end of the year, kind of look back on the year vacation on a tropical beach and does the book that I just described sound like what you should be reading when you're relaxing on the beach too, too cold. (laughs) Yeah. It's like all these cold war scenes of like people dying and stabbing each other and betraying each other and stuff like that. And it's just, it was like, Oh, like I don't think I should read Shohalov when I'm like just sitting there on the beach. So obviously I did a complete gear shift and I said, Oh, I know what I, 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 there was something that I have. Um, my local library here in LA has <clears throat> a room where they sell books, which is of course super negative for guys like us, right? Because it's like you go to the library trying to participate in the oeuvre of the library and rent things and return things, but then they just have a a thing that's like a mini bookstore where all the books are super cheap. So I just yeah. go buy I just go buy books instead of rent. Them. <laughs> all of their I old guess, stuff right yeah it helps with funding yeah so in a way i'm supporting the library possibly even more than if i did rent a book anyway so in there there's i i had there was like a bunch of classic fantasy right that and you know that i'm always trying to grab onto something that is like oh like a fantasy book from my childhood but something that will give me that nostalgia hit but that i won't think is super stupid <laughs> that's it, uh 
minefield. Yeah, it is a minefield. <laughs> it's a very, it's like I'm walking on a tightrope of just kind of being like, oh, should I read this like rehash, like Dungeons and Dragons novel to have a nostalgia hit from my childhood? Or like, I'm always trying to find something. And um, the book that I read, uh, or the one third of a book that I've read, and I, I think I'll discuss part one, and just the author itself is um, I read The Dragon Bone Chair by Tad Williams. Have you ever heard of Tad Williams? No. So Tad what Williams. Is, uh, I'm going to have to look up. So <laughs> with fantasy stuff like this, I, I judge very heavily on the cover. Okay, like, the cover is like good. They'll stick to the same kind of theme. Like yeah, the mass, the mass market paperback is pretty good. So describe the cover once you. What's it called again? The Dragon Bone Chair. So Dragon Bone Chair. Yep. Okay. Is it the one where the guy's holding? Yep. Okay. And someone's got shot with an arrow. Yeah. It's like someone's holding someone who got shot with an arrow. What do you notice about that guy who is holding the person? <laughs> what he's got, he's definitely has powers because he's got red hair. Exactly. That's like <laughs> the one thing where I'm like, holy fuck. Like, why does this like have to be like this? So the first, so the main character of Dragon Bone Chair is like somebody and i respect this about you know this book in general is that it's like a his name is simon and he's like a kitchen like like basically like a scullery boy but in a castle so it's like oh like you know there's this big wide world out there but i'm like this guy like an uneducated kind of almost sort of um not quasimodo in the sense that like you know he's like deformed and looked down upon but he he does have some like quasimodo vibes of like i just work in the castle and i'm like uneducated and he kind of like uh climbs like on rooftops and stuff and is like oh i'm just like you know he's kind of worthless and and that's cool in a fantasy book sense because you know sometimes you start out and it's like it's like they're a warrior who can already kick ass and that's like kind of lame Mm-hmm. but um but yeah no obviously within the first five pages it was like simon's like brilliant red hair and i was like okay so that means he's going to become the savior of the world like that like people with red hair that's what happens with to them um so that was the that was literally one of the only drawbacks in starting to read this book um but let's talk a little bit about about the guy himself the author tad williams so, so to me as someone who is reading fantasy throughout life, you know, oh, you pick up Lord of the Rings, you pick up, um, and then there was a certain time, you know, and when I'm a teenager, where it's like, oh, the the Wheel of Time, like, like the the reason why it's awesome and epic is because I'm gonna read these ten thousand pages. Like, you see it, you see it there on the bookshelf, and all those like spines, like Robert Jordan, the Wheel of Time, like, wow, it's so epic. There's so much to get into, <laughs> and Tad Williams. It's kind of one of those other names. Like there's like an, like all these there's a few guys that I can't say specifically their names, but if you said, you know, like there's like another book called The Mists of Avalon that I've never read, but it's like that's on the fantasy shelf. It's just there. It's like Lord of the Rings is there, The Wheel of Time is there, now George Martin and Game of Thrones is there. And Tad Williams is also there. Um, there's another guy named Terry Goodkind. Literally never read him, but I know his name from the spine of the books. Um, so who is Tad Williams? I mean, he's basically this guy. He's born in California in like Palo Alto, which is like around where Stanford is and stuff. Mm-hmm. And 
Wikipedia said his life is like kind of interesting in the sense that I mean, not that people are writing, you know, biographies of Ted, Tad Williams or anything, but he is someone who seems to like this didn't just like fall into his lap. Like they had a whole laundry list of other jobs that he's done, including including working for like different subsidiaries of Apple computers, like writing technical manuals and like doing things with like computer programming and other stuff. Like he even worked on like local television stations and stuff like that. But then by the time he's like 30, 31, he starts writing not like novels seriously. It's like he's always a hobbyist, but then eventually he's like, oh, I wrote this book. His first book, I do not. I mean, speaking of literary ties with cats, I don't think I'm too interested in his first book. His first book is called The Tail Chaser Song, and it's about like anthropomorphized cats that can like speak. Okay. And it doesn't like it just seems a little like, I don't know, maybe it's mismarketed. Maybe I should give him a chance because honestly, the Dragonbone chair, which is what I'm talking about today, I felt was a little bit more legit than a lot of other fantasies. So maybe I'm not giving him enough credit. But so his first novel sounds a little weird. I thought that there was something kind of cool in the on his uh, Wikipedia. It was saying that this is like kind of good. Um you know how like when people write manuscripts or they write like books and stuff, there's a thing called a query. Do you know about that like whole process? Query. Uh, yeah, sort of. It's just pitching. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, it's the idea ideas, of, right? Yeah, it's the idea of pitching like, OK, I go to this publishing company or whatever. If I have an agent, maybe I don't have an agent. And they go, you do this thing called a query where it's basically you're saying like, hey, like, here's me. Here's the summary. Here's maybe a first chapter or something. And I want to know if you want to publish my book. And and it said on Wikipedia that what Tad Williams did for his first book and his books are published by D.A.W. Fantasy, DAW, D.A.W. And for his first book, uh, Tail Chaser Song, he sent it off to Daw Books and then like basically he was like they don't he knows that they get so much stuff that it's like if unless you know someone or like something happens, maybe they won't even look at your book. So he sends it to them and then he basically makes up a story that his original copy was destroyed. <laughs> right like like you know and this is in the 80s or whatever or like mid 80s or something like that so oh my god like if i could like talk to you guys because my original copy was destroyed could you send me a copy of the one that i sent you because even if you don't query it or if you don't want anything then i'll have my book at least and then that leads to the person being like oh all right and then looking at it saying it's good and they publish it so it's kind of a trick. It wasn't true. It wasn't true. Mm -hmm. He didn't lose <laughs> his manuscript. So kind of a wily way of making sure at least one eyeball is on your script. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. So to talk about the dragon bone chair, I mean, honestly, it was just perfect. Like I I'm sitting there in Hawaii. I'm on the beach. I'm already 300 pages into this 800 page book. And it's just like a, it's like, Fantasy novels like this, if it's someone, if you're someone who enjoys reading and somebody who grew up with it, it's total popcorn. Like it's so, it's one of those things where it's funny comparing it at the same time to like, oh, I, I'm going to put a pause on this, you know, like heavy literature Russian novel. 
And then you go and read something like Dragon Bone Share, and you're like, why am I so easily at page 300? You know, it's like yeah. Stephen King. Why is it so easy to read 300 pages? Whereas with someone else, it's because you have to think more. And in here, you don't really have to think. You're just kind of flowing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Dragon Bone Share, it's kind of like it's it's weird. I don't want to, like, go too much into with these books. There's not like, oh, like, let's discuss the literary merits. It's just like cool that there's this story. The main character with red hair, obviously, is Simon. He's like a kitchen scullery type dude. And then, you know, it develops in the same way that like any, you know, fantasy role playing game of the last 20 years develops. Right. It's like, oh, he's like a nothing, you know, whatever. But then there's like a cool old doctor named Dr. Morgenes, who's actually like sort of like wizard. He like makes potions and stuff. And wow, like Simon is so lucky that he gets uh he gets assigned to Dr. Morgenes and like he gets to like do chores for him and stuff. And then obviously he learns to read and learns out more. And I mean, my tone of voice is like me making fun of it. And I, yeah, <laughs> I don't really want to make fun of it. It's, it's like basically, and he's, and the thing that's good with Tad Williams is that he, if I can make fun of the plot in that like tone, it's, I'm still along for the ride. You know, like there's a lot of other fantasy things where if I was making fun of it like that, maybe I wouldn't pick it up as an adult because it's just like whatever. But he is good at like getting you into his world and like this is what's happening. And, you know, um, eventually a kind of like a conflict develops between the two. There's there uh, a king, like a famous king, the king that is of the city and the castle that Simon works for passes away as from old age, but he's like this epic warrior who changed the face of the country. And now his two sons are kind of like vying for power, um, but they're not really vying for power. The one son is like basically established as the new King, but then he, you know, in the sort of like uh, clawing for ambition and stuff, he's like, well, I have to get rid of my other brother, even though I'm like already established as king because he's the only person who could kind of like, you know, fuck with me. And of course, there's like an e, there's like a worm tongue type character, like from Token, like the evil like priest who has like a like a, he whispers in the new king's ear, like this, that, and the other thing. And there are some darker things happening. Um, and then at the end of the first section of the book, which is like kind of where I want to wrap up, because I, I will talk about the plot, you know, in the coming episodes. But um, basically, Simon gets like forced out of the castle. Morgany is the wizard slash doctor guy. I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm pretty sure he's dead. You know, it's one of those things where it's like you have to flee the castle now and take nothing with you and blah, blah, blah. And you know, he just gets shoved out into the world having known basically nothing. And uh, yeah, I mean, and also, you know, it is giving me that nostalgia hit because it's just like good enough that it's like, wow, I'm, I'm interested. But then it also, you know, it has like the hand drawn maps from the author and where they're yeah. going. You can look at where what's happening and stuff. So, I mean, honestly, it's it's a it's a perfect beach read for someone like for a nerd like me and. I'm so glad that I picked it up because it is kind of it's as legit as I wanted it to be. Um, and at the same time, just taking me away into that like fantasy world of like, oh, what do we do? There's there might be dragons or like, you know, stuff like that. So what did it? So I think 
with this new format, it's we're we're starting something and you know planning to finish it. So what did this book do to you know draw you in that's so that you want to keep going? That I want to keep going. Yeah. I think it's just that it's like what I said, that that interesting kind of almost like as a reading as a reader, like purely as a reader, is that it's interesting that um you know you're sitting there and just being like oh wow i'm on page 300 or oh wow i'm on page 250 like as you feel like you haven't really read that much or like you know whatever because it's very it kind of just flows forward it's very easy and also with all fantasy kind of what you're looking at with a lot of fantasy is if you can buy into the world building which he's which he's good at um it, the world that it's kind of a game right between you and your readers of like hey i made up this crazy shit like do you want to hear about it and then the reader in kind is sort of like well are the are the names cool or are they lame or in like is the world like interesting like where is you know what's the world building like and if you buy into that then you're there and also just the idea of like knocking off another one of those names from my childhood like going to the bookstore and being like yeah tad williams like he's he's always been there those spines of these books have been somewhere in my field of vision for you know 20 years <laughs> yeah so why not like give him a, there must be a reason why you're on the shelf and and also there is you know there's very kind quotes about him in his career like you know george martin who started game of thrones he was like i wouldn't have started doing it if it wasn't for tad williams and and he's not like that long ago i mean the Dragonbone chair was published i think in 81 or something but you can see influence of fantasy novels in the sense that like the people who are making the video games that we play that are in a fantasy setting or you know the new kind of like fantasy crowd of people like game of thrones and others um they were reading this shit for sure for sure yeah so it's cool nice yeah so you, and you think you'll probably finish it for next episode i don't know about finishing it for next episode i'm <laughs> on page i'm on page 300 and it's one of those deceptive books where it's like oh yeah here's a paperback from the library like it's probably like maybe 400 maybe 500 pages and then it's like 800 pages ah, damn. <laughs> uh it's some it's seven something but i'm already on page 310 so who knows yeah you said and, it's like popcorn so it's yeah. like eating your large popcorn before the previews end no seriously i mean deceptive yeah it's very very easy to read and that's probably that's one cool. of the other things that you can say like oh a fantasy novel is not supposed to be some massive endeavor it's just like yeah. this is sick sounds good mm -hmm. yeah very very comforting and you know it's that that's the thing it's if you read fantasy when you were a kid then it's there for you for life so i have not been burning my brain with like deep russian literature i've been sitting back and being like the dragon bone chair what's going on nice. with this red-headed kid <laughs> all right sounds good so that's the first ever partial it's the first board. ever it's the first ever partial book read that is admitted as we said yeah. as we said last time <laughs> i actually have reported on books that i'm not 100 yeah. done with <laughs> So I'll have the second official one. So I, this week, I revisited an author that I covered way back November of 2019. Okay. So looking far back. So here's a clue. 
I'm not going to play too much of that. You but... read George Lucas. <laughs> no, another uh, another John Williams book. Oh, the John Williams book. Nice. So again, this is uh, one of multiple famous John Williams. There's the composer, Star Wars theme that I just played. There's a classical guitarist mm. from the band Sky. Uh, and this is the author version who came first. <laughs> he came for he came before all the other john williams yeah except so, for you know ten thousand english yeah surfs. yeah yeah <laughs> so if you remember i read stoner way back right and stoner is super famous stoner is like this book changed my life kind of book yeah and i really liked it it was uh mm. you know about the quiet struggles <laughs> of like a university teacher who just can't get out of his own way you know like the mm -hmm. innocent bystander in his own life, he's absorbed with all his teaching. He kind of approaches every major change in his life with apathy. And like, I, I think I called it a, a midlife disassociation mm, right. kind of book. So, yeah, Stoner Rules. And so I wanted to read some of his other famous books. He's basically got three that are the most well-known but mm -hmm. this week i read his western sort uh -huh. of book which is called butcher's crossing cool and it's his second novel and i, I read about uh i'm like a third of the way through or a quarter or a third but it's from 1960 mm -hmm. uh so yeah i'm partially through but i'm already drawing a lot of parallels to stoner it it it, it has that sort of feeling Mm -hmm. of the stunner before or after publishing a after oh, okay yeah but it also feels like a predecessor to the kind of cormac mccarthy introspective western mm -hmm. however you want to call that yeah. highbrow western mm -hmm. just like you know there's there's more going on and it's like a, a deeper story or you know more detailed descriptions and mm -hmm. just closer to literature than you know the i guess typical western but mm -hmm. what's which is funny when you that you mentioned that because i think that we've like the western genre especially like led by cormac mccarthy has gone kind of like far away from its origins as like the pulp like western like because when you say that it's like i don't even think i have read like a western that's like not supposed to be some literary masterpiece <laughs> they kind of took it away right because yeah the original you know westerns are sort of like there's some pulpy book mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's true yeah it, it has like strayed from that mm -hmm. i think it's just intimidating once you know something more <laughs> more close to literature like comes out i guess mm -hmm. but also the world moved on from that era, I guess, where Pulp we were, levels. or just where we were close enough to, you know, in the fifties, it was like within arm's reach still a little yeah. bit to be like, you know, yeah, my uh, granddaddy was, a, my yeah, granddaddy yeah. was a cattle rancher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's kind of shrunk for sure. But so this novel so far, it's about Will Andrews. He's a, he's a college boy. 
who, you know, he leaves his studies at Harvard. So he's an East Coaster, mm-hmm. New Englander. Those bastards. <laughs> so he, he leaves Harvard to basically find himself. He just, you know, ups and moves west. It's uh it's 1873. He he hears a lecture on the you know Ralph Ralph Waldo Emerson philosophy of nature mm. that's just so impactful for him as like a you know as a youth that he just decides to go to the wild west. He he leaves for Butcher's Crossing, Colorado to you know find his uh unadulterated self. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a it's a com that's a kind of a common theme for for like a, a novel like a coming of age kind of mm-hmm. the word uh, uh, buildings buildings Roman mm-hmm. you know and so so that's the setup but sounds like a number one reason to get your ass kicked out west <laughs> I know <laughs> why are you so, out here boy uh, yeah I wanted to find myself based on a lecture at college. Yeah. <laughs> and it's unclear. I can't I it's unclear if he actually like I, I need to go back and check if he actually had a lecture from Ralph Waldo Emerson himself, because you know he was alive at that time, like mm-hmm. in the area. He was, you know, at Harvard and mm-hmm. but I need to double check on that. But maybe that's what made it so powerful. Yeah. But so what better way to, to to find yourself out west than to go on a buffalo hunt? Right. On the plains with gotta, uh, three other guys. Got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so so the the book starts out where he's uh, he's on a train just kind of taking it all in like, wow. Like I don't know what I'm after, but these like mountains or whatever sure look awesome. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> And so and then you know he he goes to the town of Butcher's Crossing and he and he you know tries to set up this buffalo hunt and they're like well we can do it but you got to pay for it and like he's basically <laughs> funding he's funding his own coming of age like yeah. he's got to you know use his college funds or whatever let's go on safari with your money yeah that's um, funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> but so that's where I see Stoner in this novel. It's like the the uncertain ambitions, really, like mm-hmm. kind of that vague, vague longing for something and the itch you don't know how to scratch. You just kind of itching, mm-hmm. and it permeates it so far. It's it's very prevalent in Stoner. Like in in Stoner, he's first of all just you know he be he he goes to school doesn't really know like what he's after. He's trying to you know work in like his his family wants him to work in agriculture and he kind of discovers English uh, and, you know, he becomes professor and then like he, his longing for like a partner that he ends up despising and like mm-hmm. making his life just awful. Um, Yeah. So, so that, that, that uncertain ambition that, you know, leads to regret. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel this book going to. And I know a little bit about where the book is headed as far as I've, I've heard a lot of descriptions of this book is like uh, insanely dark mm. and um, uh, you know, pretty brutal at parts, mm. especially when it comes to the actual hunting of the Buffalo, but I'm ready for it. You know, I'm excited to experience the rest of it for myself. Cause I really like um, his writing style. 
What is it like? Is he like Sparts? Uh, it's the scope is always huge. Like, I don't know the way he describes something. It's like it's like you're very zoomed out looking at, you know, mm. uh, a picture of, of this guy's life. Or, you know, just the way he, he'll describe the, the scenery mm-hmm. just makes it, you know, it puts a, it puts a images in your head for sure. And it, um, it's just very powerful, I guess. I don't know how to describe it so far, but it's, that's hard to say because it's so different from Stoner where Stoner was just this, you know, on, he was on this campus and most of the time he's really just in his office, like surrounded by uh, books and papers and all that stuff and he made it feel he evoked the same feeling as when he's talking about that then talking about you know this uh mountain (laughs) town (laughs) and all the all these people um that this you know it's very really small town of butchers crossing where there's not much going on Hmm. but yeah i'm excited for the rest of it. it he really captures so far like the aimlessness of youth of youth where he's kind of just I'm, I'm doing this like i decided that i'm <laughs> i decided that i'm doing this and so if I, this if this book is i mean if stoner is like midlife crisis then this is like quarter life crisis yeah yeah interesting quarter life this crisis is, is a real thing <laughs> this is he's choosing a new major mm-hmm. or something like <laughs> to relate it to something else. But so I just want to read a quick quote from this, uh, just from the, you know, early on, just to get a little sense. So this is, uh, you know, cause, cause he's approaching all these people. He's approaching well several people, but saying, you know, I want to go do this, this, uh, Buffalo hunting trip. And they're mm-hmm. all like, yeah, you don't know what you're getting into college boy. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. so here's, he's talking to this guy named McDonald. Young people, McDonald said contemptuously, you always think there's something to find out. Yes, sir, uh, Andrew said. Well, there's nothing, McDonald said. You get born and you nurse on lies and you get weaned on lies and you learn fancier lies in school. You live all your life on lies. And then maybe when you're ready to die, it comes to you that there's nothing, nothing but yourself and what you could have done. Only you ain't done it yet because the lies you told you because the lies told you there was something else. Then you know you could have had the world because you're the only one that knows the secret. Only then it's too late. You're too old. No, Andrew said. A vague terror crept from the darkness that surrounded them and tightened his voice. That's not the way it is. You ain't learned then, McDonald said. You ain't learned yet. Look, you spend nearly a year of your life and sweat because you have faith in the dream of a fool. And what have you got? Nothing. You kill three, four thousand buffalo and stack their skins neat. And the buffalo will rot wherever you left them, and the rats will nest in the skin. What have you got to show? A year gone out of your life, a busted wagon that a beaver might use to make a dam with, some calluses on your hands, and the memory of a dead man. No, Andrew said, that's not all. That's that's not all I have. Then what? What have you got? Andrews was silent. Mm. So... I try to avoid <laughs> uh, overly descriptive one-star reviews for this one. Oh, nice. <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I'll, I'll find my one-star review while you're doing yours. All right. 
Um, yeah, I tried to avoid too much description. Like I'm, I'm trying not to, uh, not to spoil too much for me, but here's a, I got a short and sweet one. Although oh, there you're are many because these one star reviews will might spoil shit. Exactly. So, but I did notice that, uh, for this book, Butcher's Crossing under it's well under 1% of the reviews are one star. So okay. it's pretty well liked. Uh, so this is from user Debbie and she says, I don't give this review often. Very disappointing that this violent, unrelatable book is the pick for our great book conference in January. It doesn't seem to be a way to get people to attend. <laughs> <laughs> so she's really talking about like, it's, it's a very small, <laughs> her review is about like one town's like little book conference. And she said that there's a violent book. Even though, like, the person who probably picked it is, like, so psyched that they're going to get people to read it, you know? Right. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's, cause it's like uh, kind of a random pick or, like, you know, mm-hmm. a little more of a uh, lesser known. But Debbie has a private Goodreads account, so I can't see what she actually likes. So Damn. Damn you, Debbie. Cool. What have you got? Are you looking up? You got a one star for. uh, Oh, yeah. Well, when you finished. Oh, right. I should look at one. No, wait, you might have done it last episode. Did I do it? I probably I think I did do a one star. Okay, I have a one star for the dragon bone chair and I haven't seen any spoilers, so I won't kind of read through people's comments. But Ashley Daviau on Goodreads says, I think this just may be the, the most boring book I've ever read, had the misfortune <laughs> to come across. And then she, this is good. Normally I'm all for epic fantasy, but this was just epically boring. Oh, it's not epic enough. Oh, damn. epically boring trash. Um, and actually a lot of the one star reviews are actually saying that they love his other series called other world. And okay. since I like this series, maybe I'll like Otherworld even more, and then I'll have to read, you know, 40 million pages of Tad Williams. Oh, another thing that I didn't mention in my review that I want to slip in right at the end is that in uh, interviews and stuff, Tad Williams credits uh, Pynchon with, like, exploding his brain when he was young. Like, basically, like, being like, oh, yeah, obviously, I was really into Tolkien and stuff. Everyone loves Lord of the Rings. Like, I'm a fantasy writer. And he was like, but then at some point when I was a teenager, I read Gravity's Rainbow, and it, like, exploded my brain. So he's one of the tribe. Nice. Good time (laughs) to read it. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I'm hoping to finish this by next time, but we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) I'll do my uh, second partial. But thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. Uh, trying to get back to a Sunday schedule, maybe. You can find mm-hmm. us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us, sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. You can send us your comments or anything, whatever you're feeling. <laughs>